technology and data enable us to measure the impact of a company as dependably as its profit. Now, if we do that, if governments mandate that every company starting two years from now must publish impact-weighted accounts, we're going to look at companies in a completely different way. I'm Dan murray Serta, and this is Secret Leaders. We uncover the raw personal stories of the world's greatest business people, the key turning points, biggest challenges, and most valuable lessons from their journeys, so you'll get inspiration and tangible ideas to succeed at life. Today's secret leader is the British venture capitalist Sir Ronald Cohen. In 1972, he founded Apex Partners, one of the UK's first VC firms, providing venture funding for the likes of AOL, Virgin Radio and Waterstones. Yep, the bookshop. After leaving Apex in 2005, Sir Ronald became the chairman of Big Society Capital, Britain's first social investment bank. Not content with just pioneering VC and social investing in the UK, he's currently the chairman of the Global Steering Group for Impact Investment. I'll more on that later. Recently, Sir Ronald published his second book, Impact, which offers a fascinating blueprint for a hope-filled future underpinned by the social power of impact investing. But this high-flying career path has not been that straightforward or easy. So, to find out more, we need to go back to the beginning and cast our gaze over to Egypt and the story of how Sir Ronald's family arrived there. My grandparents were born in Syria. Uh, they had presumably come to Syria after uh, the Spanish Inquisition made their way uh, across uh, North Africa uh, to Aleppo. When uh, the caravan routes began to die after the opening of the Suez Canal in the middle of uh, the 19th century, a lot of uh, Jewish merchants moved uh, down to the Lebanon or to Egypt. And my mother's family moved from Aleppo to Alexandria, and my father's family uh, moved to Cairo. So my parents were born in Egypt, and, and, and so was I. And after the Suez Crisis in 1956, when British and French citizens were expelled, and my mother had a British passport from Aleppo, days, interestingly uh, enough. My mother was uh, kicked out. Uh, my father had Egyptian nationality. He lost it, uh, left as a stateless person. Uh, all our possessions were confiscated. Uh, and so I arrived as a stateless uh, refugee uh, to Britain in uh, 1957, in May 1957. So how come you, you ended up leaving Egypt? We ended up leaving Egypt because we had to. We uh, had a knock on the door in the middle of the night, uh, early in 1957. It was a secret police. Uh, they placed my mother under house arrest because she had a British uh, passport. We had to, I was uh, 11 years old then, my brother was eight. We had to get out of bed and appear at the front uh, door. A few days later, there was an X carved in uh, the wall uh, by the side of our front door. And uh, my mother uh, was uh, called in front of a sort of military tribunal and uh, having been placed uh, under house arrest for three uh, weeks. And uh, it was made uh, clear that we were not uh, wanted. Now, all British and French citizens were expelled by NASA, but it became impossible for Jews to be there either if they had other nationalities or if they were Egyptian, because Israel's role in the campaign and NASA's, uh, you know, a famous uh, opposition for the state of, or to the state of Israel, you know, made it uh, very obvious that there was no future for Jews in Egypt. This, in a way, does not obscure my childhood memories of uh, Egypt being a very happy place where Jews, Arabs, uh, Muslims and Christians went to each other's services at the Catholic school I, I attended and where I was not aware of, of religious differences, really. It was a very liberal uh, society. Egyptian people are basically liberal and tolerant by nature, but politics came to interfere with that. 
And when you arrived in the UK, um, as I understand it, your you know father started his own business, but you arrived with you know just ten pounds. So you know it's the very inspiring, I guess, immigrant story that ultimately does a great job of explaining the power and importance of of being pro-immigration, because obviously uh, this is a story of humanity and a story of, you know, the people too. So it'd be great to get in your own words, you know, the the start you had in life and the inspiration from your family's attitude towards that experience. Well, my, my family framed it very much as a, as a challenge. Uh, the minute uh, we arrived in a rented apartment in Golders Green uh, in Corringham Road, my mother baked a cake a chocolate uh, cake, as I remember, uh, to show that life was going on as normal. Uh, My parents uh, quickly recruited a young man to teach me English. My father took me to meet the headmaster of Orange Hill Grammar School, uh, a school which had uh, just been turned into a grammar school a couple of years before from being uh, not a comprehensive, I suppose it was a technical college in those days. So a school without an academic uh, record, uh, really, of any particular note, but with an outstanding headmaster uh, and an outstanding history teacher, Richard Farley. Everything was made to look like uh, a a challenge, uh, a positive challenge, if you like. Uh, When uh, my father met uh, the headmaster, uh, he asked for me to be admitted to the school and promised that... uh, If I were admitted, then I would rise to the top of the class. As you can understand, for an 11-year-old boy, hearing your father say that uh, gives you uh, a feeling of obligation not to let your dad down. And so that was a a challenge, if if you like. And then uh, Richard Farley, bless him, my history teacher, uh, after a, a year or two of teaching me, Uh, said to me, but Cohen, you should go to Oxford. Now, the school, my memory, uh, had sent only one person to Oxford many years before. And in those days, uh, you needed to pass the entrance exam to Oxford. And they didn't have an A-level stream uh, for students applying to Oxford. So I actually, thanks to Richard Farley, got into Oxford before I had my A-levels on the basis of my entrance exams. So you can understand that I feel extremely fortunate to have been helped in in this way. And it's one of the reasons why I feel a sense of obligation to help others. I never thought that uh, the purpose of my career was to make as much money as possible. I knew that I had to become financially independent because I would have to look after my parents apart from anything else. But I wanted to be financially independent in order to do more important things. And uh, my life was uh, blessed uh, because I went to Harvard Business School on a scholarship and discovered venture capital there. And venture capital was a way for me to do good and to do well at the same time, create jobs and, and make money. And of course, it was the beginning of a huge Uh, field, which uh, today, together with uh, private equity, in which Apex Partners um, was also involved, uh, is a $5 trillion pool of of capital today. And so I managed to become uh, financially independent and um, at the age of 53 said to my partners, look, I'll leave at the age of 60 because I want to deal with more important things. I want to help tackle social issues better, and I want to try to contribute to achieving peace between Palestinians and Israelis. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. 
Banter automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanter. Just head to vanter.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. It'd be really great to get a couple of minutes of your time sharing the story and the highlights from Apex Partners. Um, was it a hit right away? Did it take time to get off the ground? Uh, what kind of journey was that? <clears throat> With great pleasure. Well, if uh, you're setting up uh, an entrepreneurial firm that raises money to back entrepreneurs, you have a series of major challenges because the field doesn't exist. In 1972, when I co-founded what became Apex uh, uh, Partners at uh, the age of of 26, the word venture capitalist uh, virtually didn't exist in in Europe. It existed a bit in the UK. And the word entrepreneur was uh, difficult to spell (laughs) in, in, in the UK. My favorite quote about it, by the way, is George W. Bush, who said that the French have no word for entrepreneur. Exactly. And uh, the um, general uh, perception in the UK was that entrepreneurship couldn't possibly take root in Britain because uh, uh, Brits were too afraid of of, uh, failure and uh, society punished them uh, if they failed. So it was a very difficult environment and it took nine years from 72 to 81 before we launched our first venture capital fund in the UK, uh, a £10 million fund, then the largest uh, in Europe, together with the one launched by uh, Advent. Uh, £10 million today, it, it seems like a pittance. Uh, the largest fund Apex has raised since then is €11 billion. Euros. And so for nine years, we were providing advisory services to companies that are mainly smaller companies that wanted to expand. Uh, and usually to expand internationally. With the launch of the first fund, I felt we'd got ourselves on the right path. I sensed that venture capital would be huge. I knew that if we could deliver a good performance, uh, then we would be able to grow with the industry and even faster than many of our competitors. And so I defined a strategy for, for doing that. Uh, which involved basically being very hands-on in the sense of supporting the businesses in which uh, we uh, invest, Uh, having a a team of specialists, um, not uh, just financial specialists with an accounting background, as used to be the the rule in the early days of venture capital, a model which uh, 3i had had established uh, successfully many years um, uh, before. But uh, we came in with people like uh, Reese Williams, who had uh, been the CEO of Marconi, a, a huge, uh, a huge firm that was part of General uh, Electric. Uh, later, John McMonagall, who had been uh, uh, a very senior executive at uh, British uh, Telecom. Uh, Hamish Hale, who'd had um, very senior positions in in pharmaceutical companies. And so brought a different approach of uh, bringing more than just money to uh, the firms we backed. And then our funds grew 
from 10 million uh, to 75 million uh, three uh, years later, and then uh, a multiple of, uh, of that, 190 million pounds two or three years later. And then uh, two or three years after that, 1.8 billion uh, fund, and then 5 billion, and then after I left APAX, 11 billion. So like every business, you try to shape a brick, and then you try to work out where you can put that brick down so that you can build an edifice, and finally you find the place, and you put the first brick down, and then it becomes easier to make other bricks and put them one on top of the other and big... And, and build a big firm, which today manages, uh, you know, 50 billion uh, euros. It's like, a, you know, 45 to 50 year overnight success, that story. Exactly. Uh, it's an overnight success after many years. Um, what are some of the more recognizable investments that people would know commonly that you guys have done? Well, the most important investment we made, or the best-known investment we made, which made it to the top 100 companies of the 20th uh, century, is an investment where we lost all our money. <laughs> it was uh, the company that cloned Dolly the sheep. Uh, here, here was something that appeared to have huge potential, but uh, the technology came before there was really an application uh, for it, but it is part of the history of uh, you know of the double helix and uh, decoding of the human genome and so on. But other companies um, uh, that you've been uh, familiar with, I'm sure, are Waterstones Bookshops and and Virgin uh, Virgin Radio. My partner in the United States, uh, Alan Patrikoff, uh, who is still a very close uh, a friend invested in AOL and in Apple computers. We backed over 500 companies, many of them uh, backing people who came from modest backgrounds, in fact, almost all of them. And we felt we were doing something socially useful, uh, helping people to become wealthy and, and make others around them uh, wealthy. But I also realized as the years went by that we were contributing to increasing the gap between rich and poor. And, and so when the Treasury called me in 2000 and asked me to look at the issue of poverty and head up the Social Investment Task Force, which set me off on this journey in, in impact investing and to my new book, uh, Impact, uh, I said yes. Yeah, and in 2005, you made your surprise announcement about leaving the firm that you'd funded, which I remember, oh, well, I, I say I remember, I've done the research and seen you had a quote at the time saying, I'm leaving in order to devote my efforts to social investment, among other things. And, you know, the other things include an effort to help the Middle East crisis by funding Palestinian businesses, um, which is obviously an attempt to work out where the investment management business is going. So I think um, it'd be really interesting to hear some of your angles there, because I think that stuff is so, so important. We're speaking, you're currently in Israel. It's very easy for people without a lot of context to be like, okay, Jewish guy speaking from Israel, probably very pro everything. And here is the actual truth, which is, of course, all stories, Israel and Palestine being a very famous one, have two sides of the stories. Yeah, I mean, because I still speak some Arabic, and I remember fondly, despite uh, the hasty end of my stay in Egypt, I remember Egypt fondly. And because my wife is Israeli, and as I mentioned, her father brought Holocaust survivors on the Exodus and other ships to Israel. And because I'm British, I have a foot in each camp and I'm, I'm viewed as neutral. Uh, so in 2003, uh, with uh, Sahari Solomon, a uh, famous British industrialist who built up uh, Hillsdown Foods as a big uh, public uh, company. Uh, we set up the Portland Trust with offices in London, Tel Aviv and Ramallah. And we have had an office in Ramallah for 14 years now. And we basically worked on the economic dimension of the conflict. We've uh, so I coined the phrase that uh, you need a triple helix of uh, economics and uh, politics and political negotiation 
to arrive at a resolution of this uh, conflict. And the third strand of, uh, of, of the helix, of course, is uh, security. And so we've worked to help develop uh, the Palestinian economy. We initially worked on the financing side, copying uh, the government guarantee loan scheme that had uh, existed in, in, in the UK. About $200 million have now flowed uh, through that scheme to small and medium-sized uh, businesses. Uh, we then moved on to help develop the pension system uh, in Palestine. It's uh, hard to believe that um, uh, if you're a Palestinian working for a private company, you have no pension at all. And we thought, look, by bringing pensions, we achieve two things. One, we improve the lives of, of Palestinians, but also a private sector pension system would attract uh, 10 to $15 billion, which Palestine badly needs for, for investment. We're now working on developing a Palestinian tech hub with the help of many Israeli companies. I think what people don't perceive about this region is that not everybody is an extremist. Perhaps a third of the population on the Arab side and on the Israeli side are extreme in their views and want uh, the, you know, each other's destruction. But the majority uh, really would like to settle this conflict in the way perhaps that we've settled the conflict with Egypt and, and Jordan. Uh, perhaps not a very warm peace, but a peace that lasts uh, where there are cordial relations, at least, between uh, some of the leaders of these countries. And I firmly believe that this is achievable in Palestine. The difficulty we have is that, uh, unfortunately, every step is taken advantage of by the extremists in order to deroute any possibility of getting to an agreement. So you have the assassination of Itzhak uh, Rabin, uh, who famously signed the peace agreement with uh, Arafat after the withdrawal by Israel of its forces from Gaza. Uh, you have uh, extremists taking over Gaza uh, in the form of Hamas and then throwing rockets at, at uh, Israel, vowing the destruction of the state in, in the charter of Hamas, uh, which is, you know, is still there. So you're sort of fighting the extremists, and moderates tend to be <laughs> moderate. Uh, they don't go to the same lengths. And so we're sort of in a, in a game now where the kaleidoscope takes a turn every so often and creates an opportunity for leaders on both sides to emerge uh, and do uh, what uh, Sadat and Begin did, uh, you know, with, uh, with Egypt. I'm an optimist about the conflict. Not many people are. Uh, I think um, the economic potential of, uh, of Palestine uh, to improve the lives of, um, of Palestinians is, is huge. This is an economy that grow at, can grow at 10% a year uh, for, for 10 years or more uh, in a row. At the same time, both sides are tired of the conflict. It's a bit like uh, the Irish, uh, the Northern Ireland conflict. Both sides are tired of it. Uh, you need pressure from outside. In, in the case of Northern Ireland, it came from the United States to show the extremists that they can't win. Uh, and if we get that at the right moment, then I think leaders will arise on both sides. And we will have two states living side by side, which is, in my view, the only way to resolve this conflict. Have you had any personally really difficult moments uh, in your experience of, of dealing with this, or have you mostly been able to operate sort of from the outside without getting your emotions involved? I think because we operate on the economic dimension, people from both sides of uh, the political arena uh, the Israeli and the Palestinian side can see that this is helpful to the population. And so they sort of accept that our heart's in the right place and that they benefit uh, from our activities. In 2011, Big Society Capital launched as Britain's first social investment bank, of which you were the chairman. 
So can you explain what a social investment bank is and uh, what a social investment bank actually looks like? It's actually a very exciting subject for me because in 2000, the social investment task force that I led, established and led at the request of the Treasury to look at the issue of poverty, came out with a report that said, look, it should be possible to bring investment to charitable organisations in addition to donations. But we need to innovate in doing this. And in order to innovate, we need to create a social investment bank that brings people with expertise of the social sector as well as the financial sector under one roof. And sure enough, I, I, I did that uh, with partners in 2007. We established social finance. And in 2010, social finance invented the social impact bond. The Peterborough bond, as the first bond was called, addressed the issue of young prisoners leaving uh, Peterborough jail uh, and going back to prison within 18 months, uh, at the rate of 60% or, or more of uh, their number. And uh, we defined a, a new instrument, the social impact bond, where the return of uh, capital to the investors and uh, the financial return on their money, the yield of their investment, depended on how many prisoners had actually been prevented from going back to jail because uh, they had found opportunities to get jobs and so on and so forth, instead of going back to a life of crime and, uh, and you know, being arrested and going through the law courts and back into, into prison. On the back of that, the Cameron government, when it uh, came in, picked up uh, the file, and I remember meeting with Francis Maud at the Cabinet Office and his... Uh, He's saying to me, we opened the drawer on the, the Social Investment Bank and uh, we found the folder, but not much else. Are you prepared to work on this? And if you are, we're prepared to give you all of the unclaimed assets which uh, uh, exist in, in, in the British banking system. These are, as you know, the bank accounts of people who have disappeared and can't be reunited with, uh, with their money. Now, I'd had conversations with the Labour government uh, in, in 2005, 2007, and legislation was passed in 2008 to release these bank accounts. But uh, to have an offer of £400 million potentially to set up a social investment bank was obviously fantastic. And we raised another £200 million pounds uh, George Osborne was then Chancellor of the Exchequer. He'd been in discussion with the banks. After the 2008 crash, the banks were anxious to show that uh, they, they could use finance uh, in ways that help the most uh, vulnerable. Uh, and so we raised £600 million in total. And uh, as you say, uh, it was approved in 2011 and we launched in 2012. And I was the original chairman after about 18 months. I handed over to my very close friend and, and colleague, uh, Sir Harvey McGrath, who had been head of the Prudential and before that had, had led a, um, a, a big uh, hedge fund uh, uh, group. And he has uh, been chairing a big society capital and uh, taken it to do great uh, things. Um, we have uh, deployed almost all of the 600 million we had, but in addition to that, uh, we have brought in twice as much, almost twice as much, from investors who have co-invested with us. And the money has gone to fund charitable organisations or, or uh, purpose-driven businesses. But the vast majority is charitable organisations. Now, if you'd said to me in 2012 when we kicked off that um, a few years uh, later... Uh, half a dozen uh, years uh, later, uh, 1.7 or 1.8 billion pounds of capital would have flowed uh, to fund charitable organisations that improve lives in, in, in the UK. I would have said, uh, you know, that's going to be tough to achieve, but uh, Harvey and, and, and the team have done just that. 
What are the lessons that you've you've got out of this uh, experience that you can share with other people that are looking to have social impact too? Are there any sort of broad themes? Yeah, I, I think the world has changed. I think we are shifting uh, from optimizing risk and return in making business and investment decisions to optimizing risk, return and impact. And you can see it in the preferences of consumers who don't want to buy the products of companies that are polluting or creating social issues, young people who don't want to be employed uh, by companies whose values they don't share, and most visibly, $30 trillion plus going to environmental, social and governance investment, and another trillion or so uh, going to impact uh, investment where you measure the impact, uh, unlike uh, ESG uh, investing, you measure the impact. And that is uh, investment money that is seeking to achieve risk, return and impact. And I think there is a very powerful parallel with 1929. In 1929, companies picked their own accounting principles and there were no auditors to verify the veracity of the numbers they published. And after the great crash, investors sat up and said, how can it be that we're investing in companies without understanding the real profits they make? And in 1933, uh, the US led the world in establishing generally accepted uh, accounting principles and the use of auditors. Now, at the time, People complained in Congress that uh, this was going to spell the end of American capitalism. In fact, as we know, because of the transparency and the faith in our accounting system, we've built our investment market to be extremely uh, uh, deep and, and broad, uh, $200 trillion of uh, investable assets. Now, the parallel with COVID-19 crisis is that this money that is going to achieve more than profit has no transparency on impact this time. And yet technology and data enable us to measure the impact of a company as dependably as its profit and more dependably than when we measure the risk of an investment. And so we are in the position today to do what was done in 29 for the measurement of profit but to do it this time for the measurement of impact. Now, if we do that, if governments mandate that every company starting two years from now must publish impact-weighted accounts, we're going to look at companies in a completely different way. If I say to you that you can take three chemical companies, Sasol in South Africa, which has $12 billion of sales, and create $17 billion worth of environmental damage a year, more than the total of its sales. Compare it with Solvay, a European company of similar size, $12 billion again, whose environmental damage caused each year amounts to $3.7 billion in comparison with the 17. And then if you compare it with BASF, which has five times the sales of either Sasol or Solvay, 70 billion, it creates $7.7 billion of environmental damage a year, about 10%. Now, shouldn't these be numbers that we compare when we make investment decisions? And similarly, if you go into the supermarket and you pick a product, if you pick a a packet of, of sugar or a box of tea bags or an OXA cube. Uh, shouldn't you know that one of these companies is uh, creating three times as much damage environmentally as it makes in profit a year, and another one a similar amount, equal amount of damage to its profit, and the third one a quarter of uh, the profit is, is, um, is the damage created? Yeah, I think it's fascinating. You're coming at it from an investment point of view, of course. And I think it's, it's so interesting. Also, your timing on having this conversation with me is, is interesting. I'm sure you're familiar with B Corp, which is, uh, I guess, for consumers, really, ultimately, you know, it's for 
for-profit businesses, so not for non-profits. My company, Heights, is a B Corp. And the great thing about it is it gives you a map. So from day one, we were like, we want to be a B Corp. We want to be the most sustainable company we can possibly be. Of course we do. Who doesn't want to? But what are all the decisions we would need to make in order to do that? And B Corp make it very, 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 very hard. But once you know the things you've got to do from starting up, so my company creates product and we have manufacturers and partners and you have to realize that you have to pick them on the way that they hire their workforce, not just the way that you operate. And all of these things that you suddenly start to learn and take great interest in. And it's been a really rewarding process to deeply understand supply chain end to end, where impact relates and what your decisions as the CEO, what you're responsible for. It's totally your call who you work with. And one of the things we had to do before anything was in our shareholders agreement, we've got the classic um, PPP type, uh, you know, rule, but ultimately that we're going to put the planet as an equal level of importance to profits in the company. And all shareholders and new investors that sign up to the company have to sign that shareholder agreement, which means that we're all on the same page. We are here to create a profitable business, but we would never make a business decision that puts profits ahead of planet. And it's been a great way to just start afresh with a really clear and concise idea of where we're going. And you're absolutely right, and it's inspiring to hear you speaking in these terms. Uh, I have been personally a supporter of uh, the B Corp movement, uh, and I think all companies will eventually go in the direction of, of, of B Corps. Uh, as you say, the methodology of B Corp is heavy for companies uh, to implement. And if we can come up with impact-weighted accounts where the accounting firms are putting together these accounts in the same way that they're putting together the regular accounts that we used to, and, and the numbers are audited, it'll make it much easier for companies to qualify as B Corps. And you can imagine a world then where governments which are laden with debt uh, emerging from this corona crisis uh, and face unemployment that we have not uh, seen, perhaps, in terms of, of numbers of uh, unemployed since uh, the 30s, begin to use our companies uh, and our investments to bring solutions to our problems rather than to create the problems in the way I've been, uh, I've been describing that companies create environmental damage. Uh, governments can then begin to tax uh, those companies that create positive impact according to the impact and the profit that they, uh, that they generate and provide an incentive for a race uh, to the top. So I firmly believe that through the measurement of impact now, we can bring risk-return impact to the centre of our economic system and begin to create a world that is less unequal than it is than it is today, and, and that uh, threatens uh, our, our planet much less than we do today. And you've recently, I mean, this is a perfect segue, written a new book called Impact. So can you give listeners a, a summary of it and obviously, you know, a pitch as to why we should uh, go out and buy it, which of course we should. Thank you very much. So the book is called Impact and the subtitle is Reshaping Capitalism to Drive Real Change. And basically, it shows that this isn't just something that can happen and should happen. It shows that this is something that is happening. And it's happening because impact investment has really beaten the path to impact economies. What do I mean by that? Impact investment and ESG investing, which try to optimize risk-return impact, show us that our whole economies can do that that if we measure the impact uh, through financial accounts, which are audited as well as, as uh, the profit, and show through the same set of accounts the impact-weighted profits of, of companies, then we enable investors to be much more discriminating in deciding which companies they want to invest in. And the value of those companies that are polluting and creating social issues will fall and they will be overtaken by companies that know how to deliver both impact and a profit. By doing that, we change the 
behavior of, of companies and the capital flows in our whole economy. Well, that's reshaping capitalism. And it's within our grasp. This is not a far-off idea. We published uh, just uh, 10 days ago, we being the impact-weighted accounts initiative at Harvard Business School, which uh, I'm proud to chair this initiative, uh, the accounts of 1,800 companies, or more precisely, the environmental cost created by 1,800 companies internationally. Next year, we will add accounting for the product impact and the employment impact of these companies. And we will then be able to measure all the material impacts uh, that a company creates and look at financial performance and impact performance at the same time. We will create a world where the companies that are valued most highly attract the best talent, the most loyal consumers and the best investors because they know how to deliver return and impact at acceptable levels of, of risk and shift away from a world where companies try to deliver the maximum amount of profit without worrying what damage they cause to society and the environment. And then we all have to count on government to tax us in order to try to remedy uh, the damage. Uh, it's a self-defeating system that has ceased to work. We need to evolve to a new system now, which I call impact capitalism, which is capable of tackling the challenges we face instead of increasing their magnitude. What kind of reception have you had then from, I guess, people in power? It's one thing to be idealistic. It's one thing to be working with some of the best universities in the world and delivering a program. And it's one thing to be marketing the idea. These are all really important because you need the groundswell of support, full stop. But at the same time, you know, you're always working against forces with things like, you know, governments turning a blind eye to even charging Amazon taxes and all sorts of things that just go on state by state, country by country, all these different rules. So how do you see this mapping out and making a, a real impact and, and creating the change that we need? I think the impact revolution is already happening when you've got more than 30 trillion, which is more than a third of uh, professionally managed money across the world going to achieve more than uh, just uh, profit. Uh, that is a revolution in itself. I think we need consumers to buy the products of companies whose values they respect. And for that, they have to have the information to be able to make a, a, a decision. Uh, similarly, for all of us who are in employment, uh, we need to know what type of a company we're, we're going to be working for when we take on a job and whether we accept what those companies are doing to people and to uh, the planet. And then as investors, all of us virtually have pension funds and all of us virtually have no idea what these pension funds are doing with our money. So let us start to put pressure on our pension fund managers to disclose to us how they're investing this money, how much of it is going to environmental, social and governance investing and how much of it is going to impact investing. There's $38 trillion worth of money in pension funds across the world. Let's galvanise this money to do good and well at the same time. But perhaps the fundamental point of the book is that this notion that if you do good and do well, you're going to make less money is just wrong. By optimizing risk, return and impact, in my view, you have the ability to deliver even better profits than just uh, if you optimize risk and return. Why? Because you reduce the risk of your company, the risk of talent and consumers and investors walking away from it, of government regulating it and taxing it. And that's a a big risk, a big set of risks. But at the same time, you open the door to new market opportunities that you would not have detected if you hadn't looked at them from the point of view of impact. I want to give an example from Israel, where I sit, of an impact venture called Orcam, which uh, sought to develop an artificial intelligence product to help the blind to see. 
This is a pair of spectacles designed by entrepreneurs who built a startup into a $15 billion company, which they then sold to Intel. The aunt of uh, one of the founders was going blind, and she asked him to help her. So they've developed a pair of spectacles with a memory stick-like device hanging off the side of it, which whispers into the ear of the wearer the page of the book they're holding or the newspaper article they're holding in their hand or the banknote. Now, that in itself is a fantastic contribution to the lives of 35 million blind people in the world and 250 million visually impaired people. But if you look at it from an impact point of view, you'd ask yourself the question, how can I use my technology to help the maximum number of people in the world? And you get a surprising answer. The answer is, what if you gave these spectacles to the 800 million illiterate adults in the world? What would that do for their lives and their livelihoods? What would it do for the economies of their countries and even for the world economy to bring 800 million from not being able to read to being able to, in inverted commas, understand the page they're holding in front of them. So all of a sudden, your market goes from 300 million people or so. That's over a billion. So I think that when you optimize risk return impact, you have the potential to grow faster and to make more money. And I speak as a seasoned investor who spent uh, 33 years in a private equity and, and, and venture capital firm. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing those insights. Obviously, conscious of the time, so I want to make sure that we uh, get to wrap up nice, nice and quickly, but I'm going to ask you just a couple of last questions, if that's okay. The first is, what advice would you give to a budding entrepreneur? Well, my advice in the second bounce of the ball was uh, uh, start young, think big, and stick with it. Today, I would add to that Find a major problem, social or environmental, that you want to solve and define a business model that enables you to solve it while doing well for yourself. Great. And then what leaders do you admire the most? Our political leadership has uh, left a lot to be desired in recent times. I think uh, social media uh, are part of the reason for it. Uh, but great crises uh, call forth great leaders. I think we are at a difficult crossroad now uh, where some leaders are going to take us uh, along the populist fork of the road, uh, building on divisions and hatred and discrimination, and others, which are the ones that I look up to, take us down the road of a new deal, realizing that our society is too unequal and that we're creating too much damage to our, our planet for our own good. Which of the world's leaders will rise to this challenge? I think it's difficult to say, uh, but I have hope that the great challenges call forth great talent. Great, thank you. And then finally, two-part question. What's the best advice anyone's ever given you? And the second part is, what's the best advice you would give to listeners listening today? The best advice I ever got was from our first chairman, a Frenchman who had risen from being a messenger boy in Credit Lyonnais, one of the biggest banks in France, uh, to being its... Uh, its uh, president, its chief executive officer. And he said to me, always look to the second bounce of the ball. Everybody can see the first bounce. But if you can get to see the second bounce of the ball and understand where the world is going, uh, then that will be a great help to you in your career. And so your, your advice to others, if it wasn't his, something from your arsenal? I suppose I, I would say two things. Uh, the first is you can't learn to swim by doing exercises on the beach. 
you can't keep preparing yourself for an entrepreneurial career. You learn by doing. And by your mid to late 20s, you're ready to do that. You don't have to prepare beyond that. The second is, principles have a cost, but they're always a bargain in the end. Don't try to take shortcuts. Live by your principles, you'll attract the best talent, and you'll be prouder of your achievements. Thank you so much, Sir Ronald. I hope you have a lovely day. Ronnie, please. Ronnie, Ronnie, Ronnie. Thanks, Ronnie. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips, and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. So what Shai and I did is, to start with, we did not learn about insurance. We actually pretty consciously resisted the temptation to look up insurance on Wikipedia and start reading. <laughs> and instead we took some um, office space uh, with a whiteboard and we spent a couple of months just asking ourselves the question of, you know, first principles thinking, what do we not like about insurance? How would we build an experience that we felt good about? Next week on Secret Leaders, we've got the wicked Daniel Schrieber, founder and CEO of insurance disruptor Lemonade, who've risen from nowhere to becoming one of the most exciting companies on earth, having gone from inception to IPO in under five years, and all whilst creating a totally vertically integrated insurance platform that uses AI, data and behavioral science to get you your insurance policy fast. You're in for a treat, so remember to tune in or you'll miss out. If you'd like to hear more leadership stories, we now send a weekly email newsletter. It takes less than a minute to read and provides some enjoyable factoids about great leaders so you can impress people with your knowledge and maybe even become a better leader yourself. You can sign up at our website, secretleaders.com. This episode was brought to you by me, Dan Murray-Serta. I encourage you to follow me on social at Dan Murray-Serta for all sorts of stories on mental health and entrepreneurship. But we've also got our social channels at Secret Leaders back up and running now too. So go follow us there, particularly our brand new YouTube channel where you'll be able to see interviews just like today's on video. If you enjoyed today's episode, screenshot and tag us to share the episode or tweet us. It means a lot. And if you really loved it, why not review us please too? It only takes a second. This episode was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Harry and Daniel at Lower Street Media, artwork by Charlie Stopford and bringing it all together, our head of podcast, Will Stollerman.